Hey guys, it's Ed, and I'm coming to you live from Detroit, and welcome to quite possibly the most controversial episode in drunk gossip history. And I don't say that lightly, because y'all know I went off on my tangents, (laughs) and I said some really crazy shit, but, but... None of that compares to the show that Will and I are putting together for you today. So, I'm going to kick off by really shaking the hornet's nest. John Mulaney and his wife announced their divorce last week. Almost immediately after the announcement of the divorce came word that uh, John was now dating actress Olivia Munn. Now, some of you may know Olivia Munn as an actress. Others may know her uh, as an activist for the AAPI community. Uh, She has spent the better part of the last year advocating uh, for uh, stricter hate laws, um, especially in regards to uh, Asian Americans and um, all that. Uh, She very famously went on The View and said that it was because of Instagram that they were able to track down a person who attacked her friend's mother. Uh, and the NYPD thanked her for for shining a spotlight on that case. Uh, John, of course, is best known as a comic. And he has... Um, uh, he He's a voice on Big Mouth um, and a bunch of other shows he's guest starred on. Uh, So, John has always been a slightly controversial figure. Uh, He definitely gay baits. And what I mean by that is he will lean into his more homosexual tendencies. Uh, He will literally say that he should be gay. Uh, And then around and at the time he would remind us how much he loves his wife um uh, a guest role he had on difficult people he was seen uh well the first time we see him there's definitely an implication that he's sucking uh billy eichner's dick <laughs> so uh, you know this uh, that was not a strange spot for him the divorce announcement seemingly came out of the blue. Uh, it really seemed as though um, everything was very coordinated. The reason? It totally was. So, over the course of the past uh, two months or so, John has gotten a lot of negative publicity. At first, he fell off the wagon, or rather, he acknowledged he fell off the wagon 
and was using again and went to rehab. Then with the divorce, his PR team was very concerned that all this negative press was going to change the tides. Uh, So far, John has had a fairly scandal-free career, and they wanted to keep it that way um, so they could keep making money. (coughs) So, that's why all of a sudden he was dating Olivia Munn. Now, this is not Olivia Munn's first time playing uh, the fake PR game. Uh, We talked about how she did it with uh, Aaron Rodgers. uh, And she's done it a few other times. Um, She does it because, of course, she also wants the publicity. She's not working as much as she used to. uh, But if she can get enough press, the thought is she would be able to grab one of those top-tier roles. So, uh, Olivia has been in New York. John and his wife live on the upper, I believe it's the upper east side, or they lived, rather. Um, And they needed, they needed someone who was in New York. uh, And that wouldn't mind playing this game with them. And they found it. Right? Like, we we all know this. Like, just if you look at how everything played out. Now, of course, they're trying to confuse the timeline a little bit. Uh, and make it seem like John may have met Olivia, fell in love with her, and fell out of love with his wife. That's not quite what happened. I know, people who lie, lying. <laughs> who would have thought it, Right? Uh, so, here's what actually happened. John met someone while he was doing his stand-up. He and this person ended up having an affair. And while he was having an affair with this, with her, she encouraged him to drink. And would say things like, well, one or two won't matter, and things like that. And unlike uh, what Demi Lovato says, a lot of addicts can't do just one or two. They can't stop themselves. Uh, And so the addiction cycle started again. And by this point, his poor wife was sick of putting up uh, with him cheating, uh, uh, and he was he was blatantly cheating on her. Uh, there there was no real attempt to hide his indiscretions. Uh, according to our New York source, uh, he uh, moved on from sleeping with his mistress to sleeping with a whole slew of other people. And when his wife confronted him, he told her to shut the fuck up. An argument ensued, and she left him. Knowing that 
the story was about to get out, John talked to his people and asked them to help whip up a new whip up a new um, story for the public. Even if it made him look, come out looking a tad bit like a dog, he could spin it and blame it on the addiction. Enter Olivia. She knew going in what this was. Um, she has so far infuriated John's team by not sticking to the agreed upon story and instead talking about how they met at church and all that. So, do not expect John and Olivia to last for long. Uh, John knows that his wife is not going to take him back. Uh, Because despite what people say, that was a real relationship. Um, There are a couple of rumors out there, which are unverified at this point, um, that say that they had an open marriage, uh, but... Not a, not the way one would traditionally believe. Uh, as I said, these are unverified. Um, my LA source said that he'd heard those rumors. Um, but outside of seeing a couple of text messages uh, that were sent between John and another person uh, that fell on the racy side, um, he could not verify that there actually was ever an open relationship or anything of that sort. Now, John might try to spin it that way. Uh, He might even um, try to coax his soon-to-be ex-wife. But don't expect her to play along with him. Uh, She is fuming right now. Uh, And it said that she has a whole list of things that she wants to unleash and it appears that Johnny Boy was not just the dog at the end of his marriage of course this is a breaking developing story so we will stay on top of it but for right now I'm going to take a break and I'll be right back and moving on from one controversial figure to another let us speak about Ellen DeGeneres now I know what y'all are thinking. We broke the story of Ellen's show ending. What more could there possibly be to say? Turns out, a lot. As we've been telling you uh, since September of last year, Warner Brothers had been looking for a way to smoothly do this. While Ellen was a cash cow, the scandal affected uh, the way the show brought in money and the overall ratings for the affiliates. So while it was still going to turn a nice little profit, they were, it was so scandal soaked that there was no way that they were going to be able to uh, recover this. And as as I told you, 
Ellen had already been thinking about uh, leaving anyways. Uh, she admitted as much in her uh, Netflix special, Relatable. However, uh, at the time, her brother talked her into staying. And with her wife, Portia, uh, kind of egging her on to leave. But Warner Brothers, had the show remained scandal-free and a big earner, was going to be more than happy to throw a bunch of money at Ellen to keep her. So this whole bit about it was, it was no longer a challenge was bull. But you already knew that. You don't need me to tell you that. What you do need me to tell you is the behind-the-scenes story of how this all came about. So, Warner, as I told you back in September, Warner actually did flirt with the idea of ending the show this season. They knew that there was no way she was going to be able to... They knew that there was no way she was going to be able to recover from the firestorm. And she'd even try to pretend uh, to um, handle this scandal, right? Uh, she, she gave some half-hearted apology stating that she had no idea. She knew. She knew. But that wasn't the only problem. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, she faced a lot of backlash when she... Uh, On behalf of the LGBTQIA community, uh, when she forgave Kevin Hart for his homophobic and very outdated uh, views on his son playing with dolls. Uh, And she had again stepped in it when... um, she forgave, I forgot who the celebrity was now, but she forgave another celebrity. Um, and the the controversy just kept coming. <clears throat> Warner, having been through this already with Rosie O'Donnell, understood that they needed a move to protect their asset. Now... One of the fun things about being a Rosie O'Donnell or a Ellen DeGeneres is you already have a big enough name that studios will do almost anything to appease you and get you to sign on the dotted line. So in this case, Ellen owns her show. She owns the format. Uh, Just like Rosie owns her format. We're going to talk about Rosie next, so hold on there. Um, so if if they just fired her, she could take her format over to someone else, and they could rebrand it um, and call it The Ellen Show or s- some other name, and then someone else would have this cash cow. So... 
executives had to work very carefully and walk a very, very tight line. They sat down with Ellen, her lawyer, and her agent. And basically, everyone came to the agreement that they would see the contract through. And they would allow Ellen to spin this as as though she were the one who decided to take off. The one who decided to end the show. Let me be very clear. Ellen had no uh, inclination to leave uh, the daytime talk show. Even if she didn't find it challenging anymore... A lot like the Kardashians, she needed the show in order to fuel her other shows. Uh, if you look at, at the ratings for Ellen's Game of Games, those, those ratings have been cut in half. And for the first time in, since its uh, debut, it is on the bubble and may not be renewed. That's because it is directly tied into the daytime uh, talk show's ratings. Now, it's not very likely that NBC will cancel it. They'll, um, they'll likely um, keep it off the schedule for a while, uh, just like they did with The Wall. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about what I'm hearing about what's going to happen next week in the, in the Upfront show. But when Ellen started spinning her story... She wanted to, she did indeed want it to be very much that um she wasn't challenged anymore and whatever. Everyone told her that that was going to backfire. Um just like she blamed the media for being misogynistic and and carrying out a coordinated effort to destroy her. This was not a coordinated effort to destroy her. This was the truth about her work environment coming out. These media outlets are generally very friendly, not only to uh, to celebrities and to gay people, but the outlets that were reporting this story were generally uh, left-leaning networks or shows or even websites. So this was not a coordinated effort to destroy her. This was a big story, and she did this herself. Whether you believe her and believe that she had no idea, or if you give her the side eye like I do because I know better, and know that she knew what was happening and chose to aid and abet it rather than make any kind of significant changes. You know, and if you actually go back and look at her statements from earlier, uh, she also said that the employee who was complaining was a disgruntled employee. So how is this a coordinated effort and misogynistic if the employee was disgruntled. I'm not saying those things are mutually exclusive. But. Um, I mean. You're going for a trifecta here. Well her people were. 
re- working really hard, and the uh, Warner publicity team were working really hard to kind of sway her um, to say, you know, she wanted to do other things. Uh, maybe, maybe not bash her own show, um, which has been battered by bad press as it was. And Ellen was genuinely surprised when there was backlash against her statement. She was seen in the back offices of her production company screaming about how it wasn't fair and how all she wants to do is go back to stand-up comedy. Which is what she which is apparently what her plan is. She she has a deal with Discovery Plus uh to create some um home renovation shows and and all that, but uh, apparently she's going to be staying out of the spotlight uh, for the vast majority of um, the time after she wraps her talk show. Uh, just so um, the scandal can blow over and she will reemerge with another comedy special. Uh, perhaps even a sitcom. She has mentioned wanting to do another one. Um, she's also mentioned wanting to try some dramatic acting. I don't know how that's going to work. We're just going to leave her to it. I'm going to take a break, and we'll be right back. And I am back. And I promised you in the last segment we were going to talk about Miss Rosie O'Donnell. So we are going to speak about Miss Rosie O'Donnell. I don't know why I keep talking like that. <laughs> um, so... First of all, all of you know I love my Rosie O. Um, if, if this is a shock to you, then you have not been listening to this podcast at all, ever. <laughs> I think she's terrific. I actually met her. Uh, I was, uh, I went to the True Colors uh, concert. It was her, uh, it was Rosie, uh, Cindy Lauper, and I believe the, um, I believe the B-52s were there. In any case, um, so I, I seen her, she was performing a stand-up routine, and, um, yeah, she was just terrific, uh, she was very gracious, I met her backstage, she gave me a great big hug, and, um, you know, I've been fangirling out for her ever since. So... Um, that doesn't, that does not mean, however, I would never do any negative stories about her. Um, but I, I do always take that into consideration that, um, you know, she, at least from my, from my experience, she was not, um, the nasty evil witch that everyone made her out to be directly after her show, um, and before she joined The View, and speaking of her old show, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but in 2020, she actually brought the show back for a one-night-only event. Uh, the show raised a, nearly a half million dollars uh, for the Actors' Equity group. Uh, Actors' Equity was uh, working to help pay uh, actors who were laid off because of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
uh, it was one of the most successful fundraisers uh, that had happened. There was a, a a little bit more of a sinister reason. Maybe sinister is not the right word there. Um, let's say there was an ulterior motive, though. Rosie and a few of her cohorts wanted to see if there was still an appetite for the Rosie O'Donnell show. Turns out, there is. <coughs> now, I know no one's surprised by this. Um, Rosie has long been called one of the doyens of daytime TV. And in fact, she and Susan Lucci shared the crown for many years. Many years, I say. Uh, her show only ran for six years. But you know what I'm saying. Um, they shared the crown and, um... Rosie's show often beat Oprah's um, and was the number one daytime talk show. Uh, which is partly why Oprah hired her uh, to, do, uh, to do the own talk show. Of course, that was a huge mess and no one really knew what to do. Um, and when they reformatted it to the one-on-one conversations... Um, the show started taking off, but the decision had already been made uh, to pull the plug. Well, all that to the side, Rosie has always held on to uh, the format. It's one of her assets. Uh, and over the years, she has toyed with uh, bringing the show back. Now, I've talked to you guys before about how um, NBC wanted to bring her on uh, in case they couldn't get Chelsea Handler to take over for Jimmy Fallon. Now, we'll t- at another time we'll talk about that uh, five-year deal that broke. All is not what it seems there. Um, but um, when it comes to Rosie, she was actually willing um but she wasn't necessarily looking forward to doing a late night talk show um you know her forte has always been afternoon and of course the talk is still uh chasing her hoping to bring her on board that is looking less and less likely uh and now i'm hearing that uh universal and uh cbs studios were chasing her to launch a solo talk show. Uh, in the case of CBS, they were going to... <clears throat> and they were going to um, use Rosie O'Donnell's show to replace Drew Barrymore. <clears throat> um, as Drew Barrymore's show continues to sink uh, and the talk gets soaked in the ratings war with The View... Rosie is indeed looking to make a comeback to daytime. But she's likely going to be signing a deal with Warner Brothers. Or Warner Media, rather. Uh, they produced her the talk show the first time around. Uh, and it made them a lot of money. 
and it made her a lot of money. Uh, and with Ellen uh, leaving and bowing out of the arena, Rosie feels this would be the perfect time for her to come back in and shake up the daytime talk show industry. Word is, um, she wants to, uh, she wants to keep the fun element, um, that made her show such a rousing success, uh, but she also wants to be able to, uh, do some more, some of the more serious, um, interviews that she was doing at the end of her own show, uh, to that end, they're working out, um, some ways for this to be done, uh, including uh, possibly um, doing a a spinoff um, on HBO Max with some of her more um, with some of her more hard hitting interviews. Um, word was that she could also um, turn up over on CNN. Uh, but no one was a really big fan of that idea. Um, including Rosie herself. Um, she said that if, if she were going to do anything like that, she would want to stick, uh, to, um, one of the broadcast networks, uh, if possible. Um, that she would, in her words, stick out like a sore thumb on CNN with all those um, quote-unquote, veteran journalists. Um, but she did kind of take a shine to the idea of, um, maybe perhaps doing the big interviews, um, for HBO Max. Now, would she actually get her old time slot back? As a syndicated show, they could put it, um, the, the, Stations could technically put it anywhere. Uh, however, with Rosie being such a huge name, uh, and a, probably a very pricey um, price tag, they're going to want to put it in their plum spot. So, uh, her getting the 4 o'clock time slot uh, would not be a huge surprise to anybody. Um... NBC stations uh, were carrying Ellen, um, and so they could, they could possibly be persuaded to um, carry Rosie uh, and keep Kelly, uh, the Kelly Clarkson show, in the three o'clock time slot. Now Kelly Clarkson had been pegged as the heir apparent to Ellen, uh, and indeed. Uh, she has, um, almost everything down pat. Um, her show has been renewed for two more seasons. Uh, but no one is 100% positive that Kelly, um, is ready to step into, um, the, the shadow or step out of the shadow of, um, Ellen quite yet. Uh, and Rosie comes with Rosie comes already equipped with 
experience, name recognition, uh, and a know-how attitude. Now, the biggest thing that we're going to have to watch out for here is conflicts behind the scenes. Um, both, uh, both my LA and, uh, my New York sources said, uh, Rosie actually seems to be very happy, uh, to have this opportunity to come back, um, and, and bring the show back, um, in whatever phase and however it happens. But, according to my Warner source, um, they are prepared now to uh, make sure that uh, even even though they're going to allow Rosie to be in charge, um, they are prepared to tamper any kind of ho- hostile work environment down and toss her uh, if things get uh, too bad. Uh, we're, of course, going to stay on top of this story and bring you any new developments as they occur. For right now, though, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back. And I'm back. So, this is one of those stories that um, I actually had no idea about, um, but once it hit my attention, I had to scramble and find out everything that I could. So, here... Uh, here is what we know about the Dan Brown divorce. First of all, for those of you who don't know, Dan Brown is the writer of The Da Vinci Code, among several other high-profile historic fiction thrillers. Uh, and I don't even know if I got his genre right. I know I know he writes thrillers. I, I always think they're historical fiction, but um, they may not be. Anyways... Um, but so he has these, he has the Da Vinci Code, um, Angels and Demons, um, The Lost Symbols, and he, to say that he has made a small fortune would be an understatement. Uh, his divorce, or he, his net worth was over $190 million dollars. Say what again? <laughs> um, those are the kind of numbers we all crave. So, uh, Dan and his wife have been together forever. And he began cheating on her with an equest- uh, equestrian. Uh, his wife happened to um, love horses and uh, they, they bought a couple of horses and um, they hired... This this other woman to come in and, and train the horses and help his wife and all that. <clears throat> well, he started having an affair with her. And lavishing her with gifts. That relationship ended. Uh, and so far as I can tell, and so far as anyone of my sources has been able to tell me, um, it ended very amicably uh, with, with them remaining at least on friendly terms. And then Dan started having more more and more affairs. Now, this is not a huge surprise. Um, we've seen in Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos 
um, and even Elon Musk, that these rich, powerful men will sleep with whoever they want to. It does not matter. They will cheat on their wives without fear of consequence. And so that was essentially what was happening here. Dan Brown continuously cheated on his wife. Well, his wife was growing frustrated and started spending a ton of money. <clears throat> um, and not telling him about um, the, the vast amounts of money that she was spending. So when he uncovered her little secret, he started hiding assets. And all of this is boiling over in court, right? Like, this is just phenomenal. This, this is the kind of legal thriller that you want to read. Uh, the kind of high stakes uh, book that you would think Dan Brown would write. <clears throat> well, as it turns out, he, while he was lavishing gifts on his mistresses, he was also funneling money because he knew he was going to be getting a divorce. And in fact, According to one mistress, she he had been planning on filing for divorce all the way back in 2017. Now, there's no word yet on why uh, he kept the marriage going for four more years. Um, it's not like a, a divorce would be a huge scandal and, you know, he would lose... Um, any of his development deals or any of his books or anything. Although he has uh, suddenly stopped working on projects that he had. He has stopped working on projects that um, at one point he had been uh, working on relentlessly. Now, we don't know for sure, again, what is happening. Um, the book deal could have fell through. He could have writer's block. Any number of things could be the case. Well, his wife is claiming that he doesn't want to include that, include any books or projects in, in his assets. So he has stopped work on them. And is possibly even shelving them until after the divorce is final. So she is asking and trying to prove uh, that he is committing fraud. Now, of course, there is no evidence that this is the case. Uh, and again, there's no evidence that Dan Brown is actually... Um, stopping any business deals or trying to uh, hide assets. Uh, or I should not say hide assets. Uh, to um, take his wife out of um, any kind of business dealings. And in fact, it could definitely be argued that the opposite is true. 
um, that he has bent over backwards and feels that she has taken enough of his money. As the divorce starts to get nastier and nastier, we're going to start hearing more and more things. And according to my LA source, uh, there is one particular story uh, that has that was shopped around already in the gossip circles of Los Angeles uh, that was shot down. And that was uh, Dan Brown and Tom Hanks had a night out on the town and Tom has been protecting one of Dan's mistresses from being revealed. Uh, the reason why this is debunked is uh, essentially, uh, even though it is very likely Tom Hanks and Dan Brown uh, met and possibly even spent time together, it is not likely, and I'm going to repeat this, it is not likely that they caroused around town, particularly because Tom Hanks is one of the most recognizable stars in the world. Uh, if he was out on the town without his wife, that would have led to a huge um, a, a huge rumors. Um, paparazzi spilling out all over the place. And frankly, it just doesn't align with anything that we know. But, my only source did say, that doesn't mean he was never... That doesn't mean uh, Dan Brown himself wasn't out on the town and carousing around. It just means that there's no reason for us to believe that uh, Tom Hanks was with him. Uh, the next rumor is that Dan Brown, um, that was making the rounds that has also been debunked, um, at least so far as we know, is that Dan Brown was having uh, relations with other men. Now, uh, this seems to be a common thing where um, disgruntled wives will will throw out the gay card. Uh, Dan Brown has admitted to having mistresses, uh, and particularly the equestrian. However, uh, there is no evidence, not one shred of evidence, uh, that he had sex with another man. And trust me, if if he had, um, my LA source uh, would have been would have known about it, or I would have heard about it by now. Um, I even took it to my New York source, who is tuned into uh, all the literary gossip, and she said she had heard the rumor, uh, and she had personally checked out. Um, to see where the source of it, and it came from the ex-wife, or soon-to-be ex-wife. She says she could not find one other source that uh, said this. Uh, so, the ex-wife is going to spin out a couple of tales to see, and see what really takes hold to try to shake Dan Brown down and get a better settlement for herself. 
Will it work? We won't know until we continue to follow the story. (laughs) That was bad, wasn't it? (laughs) I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back. And I am back. So this is kind of an old one, a throwback. Uh, Will and I were going to do a uh, deep dive into this subject, but... um, You know, as things were coming together, it just felt right to do it um, along with this episode. All of you know I rate true crime. Uh, I don't think that's a surprise to any of you guys, right? Like, um, if if you've listened to the podcast at all, well, you know. Um, now, of course, I write, um, I write comedy, and uh, I wrote the Megan Kelly book uh, that was a companion to to drunk gossip, uh, and um, you know all that. But uh, as of late. Uh, my career has been revolving around true crime. And one of the true crime stories, or one section of true crime that, first of all, is very profitable for me, but also very enjoyable, uh, is old Hollywood. Y'all don't understand how much I love old Hollywood. It is simply the best. It's the most fascinating to me. Uh, and part of that is because the studios would cover for movie stars and all that. But if you got in trouble, boy, were you in trouble. So, to that end, I wanted to talk today about Lenny Bruce. Now, a lot of you know, uh, the name from the marvelous Miss Maisel. Uh, some of you might even know um, him from his actual stand-up routine or his book, How to Talk Dirty and Influence People. Uh, I, and I actually read the book. It's fascinating. Like, he just, he does not hold back. So, here's a little bit about Lenny Bruce. Uh, As I said, he was a stand-up comedian uh, in the late uh, 50s, early 60s. He uh, was mostly based in New York, but uh, he traveled all over the country. He met met his wife. Her name was, I believe her name was Honey. Uh, At least that's how I've seen her referred to everywhere. Uh, uh, Honey was a stripper, and it irritated Lenny to no end. So, he decided he needed to make money and got involved in a very shady charitable organization. Uh, And they went down to Florida for a little while. Well, you know things, you know how those kind of things tend to blow up. Well, these blew up. Uh, Lenny made a ton of money, though. Uh, And when he moved back to New York, he did, in fact, face criminal charges uh, for this, but was acquitted because his defense was, we never said how much of this was, how much of the money that we collected was going to go to charity. 
And that wrinkled some people. It didn't sit with them, right? So, it seemed like there was a target on Lenny's back. He went back into the the stand-up game and developed a reputation for being very crass and, and crossing boundaries. One of those boundaries was he hinted that he may not be completely straight. Now, there is no evidence to suggest that he carried on affairs with men or that he was even attracted to men. Um, All we know is on stage, he would definitely uh, say things that could be construed as uh, as coming out. Uh, but he never officially came out. He never officially called himself uh, anything. Uh, it is widely believed and accepted that he was straight given his marriages. Uh, and uh, the only thing that I've seen that counters that is uh, given his... Given his stature, uh, there doesn't seem to be anyone coming forward claiming to have had an affair with him. But that's neither here nor there, to be honest. So, as Lenny's reputation grew, police started showing up uh, and arresting him. And each time he would squeak out and never really face any charges. Which, you know, always a good thing. Um, We we often, uh, in today's day and age, scream about, uh, you know, the First Amendment and all that. Without actually ever analyzing what the First Amendment means. Uh, so, well, we're going to get back to that in just a second. Um, he was arrested in 61 in Philadelphia, uh, and then again in April of 1964 at Cafe Agogo in Greenwich Village. Uh, this time in, in Greenwich Village, they sent undercover detectives there to catch him. And... He was charged with, with obscenity, among other things. His whole... Uh, and the two owners of the nightclub that he was at were also arrested. So, he built his whole case. See, I told you I was going to circle back to this. <laughs> he built his whole case around the First Amendment. Now, the First Amendment actually says that the government shall make no law. So if, in in this theory, if the nightclub had fired him, that would be fine, because they're a private business. But because the government was trying to punish him, that violated the constitutional amendment. Uh, a three-panel, um, a three-panel or a three-judge panel, uh, 
uh, presided over the six-month trial. And uh, many celebrities like Norman Lear, uh, Norman Lear, Woody Allen, Bob Dylan, all spoke out in his favor. Still, the panel convicted. Uh, and he was sentenced to uh, workhouse for four months. Uh, later on during the appeals, uh, Lenny Bruce died of an overdose, but his appeal or his conviction was overturned. So, doing my due diligence, I went and spoke to drunk gossip's legal experts and asked why Lenny Bruce could be convicted when the Constitution was so firmly on his side. And the answer was quite eye-opening. Basically, the Constitution was on his side, but the law was not. And because no one had challenged the law up to that point, it was widely accepted to be valid. When he challenged those laws, then we started to see things um, shift a little bit. There was a paradigm uh, change. Lenny is credited with uh, bringing us to where we are today. Uh, And he's also credited with uh, giving us the freedoms that we now enjoy. Um, Now, I know that sounds strange. Let me explain. If he hadn't challenged the... If he hadn't challenged uh, these laws, if he had just accepted that he was going to go to jail, uh, then we may very well still have these obscenity laws. Uh, And in fact, in my home state of Michigan, uh, about 10 years back or so, a man was actually charged with swearing in front of a woman. Uh, They were in a park. Uh, If I remember the story correctly, they were canoeing. Uh, He dropped an F-bomb. And police came and arrested him. Uh, He actually fought that. He fought the charges. Um... And I believe he ended up winning. And uh, city legislators had to go back and uh, change everything. So, uh, you know, these sort of obscenity laws, these people who are spouting um, about the First Amendment need to go back and read it. And they need to understand that, you know, these challenges... Um, you know, Facebook is a private entity. Uh, Twitter is a private entity. But, uh, these laws that are oppressing our right to protest, our right to assemble and let the government know what we're thinking, those are illegal and unconstitutional. But for some reason, they don't see a... They see their demagogue 
being kicked off of the social media platforms and they feel that those are first amendment issues but not but not the literal attacks on the first amendment almost like the people back in the 1960s that's going to do it for me for today coming up next is will with politics Hey folks, producer Will here, and welcome back to Politalk. I hope there won't be too big a difference in audio quality tonight. My usual recording setup has been rendered unfeasible by the fact that it's... Well, it's a coat closet that I can't really afford to be in for too long tonight because it's 80 degrees. Summer has arrived very suddenly in my hometown. Hopefully I'll be able to deal with that so effectively that the only thing you'll have to suffer from are my takes. Now... If you were hoping that I'd offer you a break from controversial topics for the evening, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you, because tonight I will be pissing on the political third rail that is the Israel conflict. The actions of the Israeli government are a controversial topic, to say the least, and the nation's supporters tend to respond to even the mildest criticism of its government with harsh threats. And I will be offering considerably more than a mild criticism of their government tonight. So, sit back, relax, and watch me gear up and swing a bat at this hornet's nest. Little bit of background first. Since Israel was founded in 1948, it's been in contact with the Palestinian Arabs who lived in the region beforehand and believe they have the right to self-determination. A full history of this conflict is probably a bit beyond the scope of tonight's politalk, so I'm simply going to summarize the modern state of affairs, which is that the UN recognizes Israel but also recognizes limited Palestinian self-rule, primarily over East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. A large portion of Palestinian territory is under military occupation by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, and as such is effectively subject to Israeli rule, despite not having any voice in the Israeli government. Israel imposes pretty harsh rule on the Palestinian territories, publicly to fight and defend against Hamas, a Palestinian terrorist organization that opposes the existence of the state of Israel at all, and regularly attacks cities and settlements in Israel and the occupied territories with rockets. However, many members of the Israeli government support the occupation of Palestinian territory becoming permanent and have backed the construction of Israeli settlements in occupied territory to effectively extend their control. These settlements have displaced and marginalized a large number of Palestinian civilians, and those that have resisted the displacement or attempted to protest Israeli control of the region have often been met with overwhelming force. Internationally, many have been critical of Israel's tight control over Palestine. Human Rights Watch, in particular, has accused Israel of effectively creating an apartheid regime within Gaza and the West Bank, where native Palestinians have no say in the government of their homes and are denied human rights by the Israeli military. That was a rough and general overview of the situation as of two weeks ago when Israeli police began evicting Palestinian families from their homes in East Jerusalem to make way for Israeli settlers. Protests and demonstrations started quickly and turned violent even more quickly. Israeli police showed up to Arab demonstrations with riot gear and tear gas, and protesters threw rocks in response. 
The most significant escalation came on Monday, May 10th, when Israeli police stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the holiest sites in Islam, and fired tear gas and stun grenades at protesters and worshippers alike. Hamas began attacking Israel with rockets from Gaza shortly afterwards, with a spokesman for the organization saying that the fire was in response to, quote, Israel's crimes and aggression in the holy city, quote. For its part, after the rocket strike, the IDF began a retaliatory bombardment of Gaza. Both rocket strikes and retaliatory bombardments are ongoing at press time. The best interpretation of the Israeli bombardment is that it's been indiscriminate. At press time, over 200 Palestinian civilians, including 60 children, had been killed by Israeli bombs, a number an order of magnitude higher than the 10 Israelis, including one children, who've been killed by rocket fire from Gaza. Both sides have drawn international condemnation, but the IDF has faced an unusually high level of criticism over its choice of targets. The IDF has targeted roads, power facilities, hospitals, and schools during its bombardment of Gaza. And though the IDF has claimed that each of its targets has been connected with Hamas, the evidence they've provided has often ranged from scant to non-existent. The most prominent example came on Saturday, May 15th, when the IDF bombed a high-rise containing the local offices of the Associated Press and Al Jazeera, two of the organizations that, notably, have provided the most negative coverage of their attacks. The IDF claimed that the building housed Hamas's military intelligence division, but offered no evidence to back that claim up. Critics accused Israel of trying to censor the coverage of its operations in Gaza, a claim which is somewhat hard to deny considering the organizations targeted. Despite international pressure for a ceasefire, the conflict has continued unabated. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has stressed that Israel has a right to defend itself and that operations will continue until there's complete silence from the Gaza Strip. Now, I understand that the Israeli military has a right to defend its people and that given their history and neighbors, they've got a reason to be wary of these kinds of attacks escalating. But using the self-defense argument in this situation is absurd. Israel has been the primary driver of this stage of the current conflict. During nearly every portion of it, the IDF, Israeli police, and government have been the ones escalating things. As we went over earlier, the current stage of the conflict began when Israeli police forces attempted to evict Palestinian families from land that's internationally recognized as theirs. And I really really hate that they're making me defend a terrorist organization here, but the public justification for Hamas's most recent attacks was the Israeli police's frankly brutal attack on a major Muslim holy site. Nobody would expect the Israelis to just lie down and take an attack on the Temple Mount, after all. So it's not really reasonable that they're expecting Palestinians to do the same. Furthermore, the IDF's retaliatory attacks on Gaza are wildly disproportionate to the force used against them. Frankly, they almost seem more like they're aimed at making the region uninhabitable, rather than stopping Hamas. It's unclear what the next steps for the U.S. are. 
Reportedly, President Biden's administration is working through back channels to try and arrange a ceasefire. However, given how this particular part of the conflict started, the party that would have to contribute the most to a ceasefire would be the Israeli government, and they've expressed no interest in doing so. Furthermore, despite their recent, well, let's be honest, atrocities, the Israeli government holds a significant amount of support among U.S. politicians of both parties. Representative Rashida Tlaib's attempt to raise support for sterner opposition to the Israeli government's actions drew little support or backing even from her own party. And the Biden administration has approved continued weapons sales to the Israelis in spite of all this. There's fairly significant popular support for Palestinian civilians in the U.S. Protests in solidarity with Palestine have sprung up in several major cities, with the largest in Detroit, bringing more than a quarter of a million people out onto the streets. It's unclear how much this will sway local politicians or intimidate the pro-Israel lobby, who are sort of infamous for going hard after any criticism of Israel. Really hard, by the way. Like, there's a decent chance I get death threats for recording this hard. So, there's a nice note to end on. But popular support isn't nothing, especially here in the U.S., and calls from Palestinian citizens to raise awareness about what's happening in their home country have been echoed and amplified internationally. So, with luck and pressure, hopefully, it will still be possible to negotiate, if nothing else, at least a reduction in the violence. Well, that was a heavy one, wasn't it? Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And, as always, cheers. Cheers.